Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Hi, I'm Molly, I'm the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Louisa Yates. Louise Yates is Director of Collections and Research at Gladstone's Library, a post she's held since its inception in 2012. Louisa combines her post at Gladstone's Library with a role as visiting lecturer in English at the University of Chester. She is also a co-festival director of the library's major and micro-festivals Gladfest and Hearth, um, and is on the long-listing panel for the library's successful Writer-in-Residence programme. As Director of Collections, she is currently involved in multiple digital Gladstones projects, helping to develop a digitisation platform that will share the written archives of key 19th century figures with the public. Hello, Lisa. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. So we've got loads of topics to cover, um, and I've been really looking forward to asking you about independent libraries. But... And well, of course, our main connection to you is as the director of, of collections and research at Gladstones. Um, but there's one thing that I wanted to ask you about first, which was this line that kept popping up in online bios um, when I was researching you, which was it is her committed belief that scholarship and research should not be confined to university. And it kind of, I don't know, it struck me because I'm quite like a relative newcomer to working in independent libraries, but I found that one of their most attractive qualities for me is um, their kind of lack of an institutional feel and they have this spirit of slightly eccentric but totally genuine interest in knowledge and learning which institutions can often sap. Um, so I suppose my first question is what why do you believe uh, scholarship and research should not be confined to university? <laughs> um, yeah that's quite a big question. Um, I'm, I just think it's so obvious that people as a group you know, whether that's a nation, a community, a town, a city, an individual person, are learners. You know, everybody likes to learn. Everybody likes to learn new things. You know, it doesn't matter what that new thing is. And within independent libraries, those new things tend to be quite intellectually based things, mm. I guess I would I would say. Um, but it just seems so obvious to me, you know, as somebody who has worked in universities for sort of the last 12 years and who is somebody who loves to learn I love to to learn you know all, all new things you know the pandemic has been dreadful in a number of ways but has also been absolutely fascinating in in lots of others as we as we all learn new things together and grow and develop and, and share and it mm. just seems so obvious uh, to me that you know the university is not the only vector where knowledge can be transmitted and I I I work in in literature English literature in, mm -hmm. in particular and, and Victorian studies um in particular I've not met a single person ever on my travels whether that's somebody a student sitting in a seminar or someone I'm chatting to on the bus or a person who's just walked into Gladstone's library for the first time I have never met a person who isn't interested in something about the 19th mm -hmm. century whether that's Gladstone's role as prime minister whether it's Victorian sewage systems, whether it's the role of women, what working class women were doing, wearing, eating, thinking. I mean, you know, we are, look, look how popular Sherlock is with Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, we love it. You know, we, we love new things. We love new perspectives. We love new ways of learning. Um, and the idea that you have to go to a university to do that, in some regards, the university is an excellent place. And I recommend it very strongly um, for people who are interested in learning in a particular way and to a particular level. Um, but the idea that you know, these discussions can't filter out and resonate out in wider in wider communities, um, you know, and I, I think we all I think we all know that, really. I think yeah. we all know, everyone, you know, we all know that instinctively. Although, like, I loved being at university so much. It kind of, it's one very specific niche style of learning and, and retaining information. And you see, like, 
I don't know, I always think about, so our collection was is built on member requests and you have these weird kind of pockets of really niche interests where you have loads of books on that cricket, for example, because someone like 20 years ago was really into cricket and you can see that kind of like passion, which I think is kind of, yeah, I don't know, sometimes it gets lost in... in uh, uh, and, and as a young person yourself, I'm sure you're not intending to hang up your learning hat because you finished university, for example. Yeah, exactly. Learning, learning is truly lifelong. You know, I didn't, I, I've always spent my formal education within the bounds of the humanities. You know, it's my first yeah. love, my, my forever love. Um, but does that mean I can't suddenly start learning about particle physics tomorrow <laughs> because it's interesting? You know, of, of course not. And I think, as you say, libraries offer this really physical monument to the mm. fact that, as you say, sometimes people just really want to read intensively about cricket. And then <laughs> the next month it might be poetry or they might see something on the TV or on Twitter that sparks yeah. And people's borrowing records and, as you say, accession records of libraries and the collections yeah. of libraries are really lovely testaments to how people's interests can grow and shape and, and last forever. Yeah, it's kind of um, like your browser history book, probably. <laughs> yeah, like a really good browser. Slightly history. elevated. Yeah, one you're not embarrassed to show all your friends. A really yeah, exactly. That's just dedicated to acquiring new knowledge. Yeah, well, I, so I guess slightly in that same topic can you tell us a bit about your background in independent libraries and universities I guess but how did you kind of fall into this line of work yeah I I was a I was a book nerd you know all I ever wanted to do ever 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 was was read books and spend my time reading books and learning about books and I can remember being you know four years old at school and that you know absolutely being all I wanted to do I wasn't particularly interested in you know making lots of friends at school I wasn't particularly interested in in doing lots of other topics at school I remember you know, famously I didn't learn to tell the time until <laughs> I was about 15 I just wasn't particularly interested and it was books all mm. I cared about and wanted to do was was read um, and then as I got older I realized I was very interested in the mechanism of books because lots and lots of people love to read but not so many people love to really dismantle the books that they love but mm. lots of people that would ruin and spoil the enjoyment I have always loved to do that you know to sort of have the bonnet up really pull apart you know um what what's going on you know what makes sentences interesting what makes characters interesting um, and so, you know, as you get older, you realise that there's a space for that. And, and that space is, is English literature and particularly English literature at the higher levels. You know, it is mm. much more welcome uh, to argue from multiple perspectives or say that the author is dead or point out, you know, mm. fallacies in literature, you know, when you get to sort of A level and, and above. So, you know, it became quite clear that sort of natural home for me was was to go to, to university and to, and to do this. And I just sort of kept kept going. And I, I was just on the cusp where fees were introduced. So I was just, you know, when I first, I took a gap year, oh. and an idiotic gap year, because that gap year yeah. was the last year where you didn't have to pay to go to university. <laughs> uh, so the first year I entered university, it was it was fee paying and it just sort of, but it was affordable, you know, you could do it. Yeah. And, and I just sort of went like that, you know, I, I did an M, I did a, a BA and sort of went to work for a bit and thought mm, no I, I really don't want to leave that world behind did an MA again thought really really don't want to leave that world behind and, and went to a university that was very pro uh, PhD it was very mm -hmm. pro it's it's MA students there was only about sort of 14 of us there weren't many and there was sort of very pro that this was the path you could you could take and so with their encouragement, I put in all kinds of applications for scholarships. I actually won a, won a scholarship and therefore was able to do a funded PhD. I was extremely lucky. Wow. So I was able to spend four very, very happy years um, financially supported to produce a PhD on um, neo-Victorian fiction, uh, which I very happily uh, did. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was just the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and emerged out of a PhD in 2011. Um, so post-Brown review, post-dramatic mm. uh, changes to the way uh, universities were funded and it made a very an already very challenging employment landscape into something 
really quite quite difficult and also you know as I think when anyone hears me speak or you know engages with me in any way you know I'm not I'm not somebody who was only interested in 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 working in a university I've always liked you know a lot of everything really yeah um so I was you know I was quite happily working part-time in universities and I thought this is lovely you know a bit of a bit of academia is absolutely fantastic but I've, I've got these other places that I'm interested in as well and I didn't know at that time because of the path I'd been very very focused on literature very focused on literature I hadn't taken the time to look around me and think about other options and other mm. paths. and now young people who I come across who have studied the humanities they're much more switched on than I was you know they're much more um savvy with that vocational transfer you know I have an English literature degree I have a theology degree I have a history degree what do I do with that and they yeah. often do find libraries archives museum studies you know culture and they're, heritage baby. Culture, exactly exactly <laughs> you know, and I I really I tr- it took me until I was about 30 years old yeah. to realize that this you could go and work in these places you know actually these places really did need people you know, and I'm not a librarian, and I always want to foreground that because a librarian is a professional qualification. It's a protected, you know, chartered career. You know, and I, I they they don't need they don't need PhDs <laughs> going. Oh, I can be a librarian. So that's not yeah. that that, that but, wasn't what I was. But I, I I found this place called called Gladstone's Library. I'd been here. I'd written part of my PhD here, um, and and they were looking for interns. And it was as simple as that. I thought, well, what a fantastic thing. You know, this, I can't get a job. I can't even get a temp job at the moment. Um, I have therefore this opportunity to go and spend three months living in a library in North Wales. And sort of that's that's what I did. And it it went from there, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. So Gladstone's for, for those of you who don't know, um, is the UK's only residential library. So you go and you stay there. Um, and it's based in the village of, and there's a specific way to pronounce this. H- is it Harden? Harden. Well done, gold star. Yeah, spelt Howarden um, in North Wales. Um, and it's it's today housed an impressive purpose-built built library. Um, and the residential wing has 27 bedrooms. Um, and its books and sense of history have dis- been described by one Guardian article I read as a blissful secular balm, which I thought was quite good. Um, and it grew out of a per- the personal collection of William Gladstone, who was prime minister um, between, no, I'm not going to read all that, but he was prime minister four times, basically, the only only prime minister to have, to have ever served four terms, um, and the oldest prime minister as well. And he was a classical scholar, his library, um, which in its original form, I think, was called the Temple of Peace, another good name, um, and personal collection of books were, at least himself, one of his kind of most important legacies. So can you tell me yeah, very briefly a bit about Gladstones and its history and what kind of stands for today? Yes, it can be a very long uh, yeah. a very long. <laughs> well, I watched um, your um, AGM talk uh, here on it, which was fascinating. Honestly, it's so interesting. Oh, thank you very much. Well, it is, it's, again, it's a fascinating story, so it doesn't take much for me to make it um, really interesting. Um, yeah, you're, you're quite right. Effectively, Gladstone um, has a house. You know, he cut, he's got a long and storied and varied and interesting life. And all of that life is intricately connected with the process of reading. And, you know, the real sort of just, he was a machine for processing information. He read about 22,000 books in his lifetime, which he noted down in his diary. So we do know that, you know, that's not some yeah. rough estimate, you know, that, that is documented um, that he read these he read these texts. He had a personal library of about 32,000 books, which were held in his study in his house, which was the Temple of Peace. As you're right, it is a great name. And as he comes to the end of his life, he, like so many people with great libraries, uh, vast libraries, I think is thinking what, what he can do with this. Uh, and his decision is that he buys a patch of land uh, very close to his house, sort of across the road from the gates to his estate. Uh, and has a tin building uh, constructed. And as you say, we're a purpose-built residential library, and that's a really important distinction. So even when we were a very modest corrugated iron structure uh, Mm -hmm. filled with his books, which he allegedly uh, brought down from his house in a wheelbarrow, making many journeys, uh, that modest corrugated iron, quite leaky, quite drafty building had a house attached to it on the same site and people were always intended to come and stay you know that was always his idea 
He's a very hard worker, Gladstone. You don't have to do much reading about him to realise that he lived to work. And I think that's a, a key uh, component to the founding of um, St. Daniel's, as we were as we were known mm-hmm. then, um, is that it is a space in which you are granted the most efficient conditions to do a lot of work. And the role of the books is, is to facilitate that work. So you have basically 19th century Google at your fingertips. You know, mm-hmm. you've got something to do. You've got something to finish. You want to work and think quite seriously about a given topic any topic you like but what you need to do is work and think quite seriously about it and it was that really that he that he sort of saw was so necessary and so needed and it was that which he created so in its initial um lifespan the 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 library that Gladstone knew it was this very modest corrugated iron structure with the books in and this quite modest house uh, that functioned as a hostel after his death in 1898, enough money was raised uh, by public subscription for some kind of memorial to him. And uh, the people in charge of spending that subscription very sensibly uh, decided that there were quite enough statues and more than enough paintings. And actually, mm. they put the money towards a permanent library structure. And that's the building I, I sit in today and the building that you'll find when you Google pictures. of. of it's so I mean, it's it's gorgeous. It's so impressive. It looks like just the most amazing place it, to work it, 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 I, mean, it, I mean every day every day I yeah. walk up the drive or I drive into work and I just think I'm so lucky yeah and it has he um is kind of semi-credited with inventing a specific kind of shelving is that right although I, I don't think he did like crenellated shelving is that well that? yeah so he advises um, I, I recommend uh, finding this uh, you can if you google it um you can find copies on sort of archive.org and things like that and he, he writes again at the very end of his life he writes a little pamphlet called on books and the housing of them where he advocates for ex- almost exactly uh the design of our two reading rooms mm. um and he talks about that you know books he talks very beautifully writes very beautifully about books um with real passion and, and vigor um that they have a soul that they can talk to you and the best way of having books talk to you is to construct a situation where you can see as many of them as possible and his mm. solution for that is this crenellated shelving a bit like the top of a turret you know where the the books kind of weave in and out and you can sit among them um, you know, and he has this practical element. He's not just romantic about it. He says it's the most efficient way of storing a great mm. many number of books. And I, I think we think he adapted that. The crenellated shelving existed in different forms, most notably in the library in uh, Trinity College in, in Dublin. Okay. Um, but other examples that I've seen of these crenellated shelving, they've only got books on two sides. His crenellated shelving has books on three sides. So again, yeah. Footprint, and he allegedly invented the rolling stack as well. But he very, uh, he very clearly says in on books and the housing of them that stacks, rolling stacks, you know, where you close them and you can't see your books. That's really only suitable shelving for things like periodicals and magazines, yeah. like soulless books, books that aren't necessarily going to talk to you. Um, yeah. are, are the sorts of things that should be put in a rolling stack. I like that um, specificity. And he had, he had like three desks, and he had one for like scholarly work one for political work and one for his wife which I thought was nice yeah really and and the temple of peace um was next to their drawing room so if Mm. you think of where people tend to have their studies they tend to be in attics um I think it's Carlisle famously his study is right at the top of the house far away from the noise of the house and the noise of the street as he can get and I think that's quite common Gladstone's is right next to the main drawing room of the house you know it, mm. it really exists in the heart of the house and I think you know you don't have to look too hard to start drawing interesting parallels about what work meant to him and you know how 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 central he he, he saw it to, to yeah him. yeah and I like that appreciation for like the physicality of books as well because I think also being in a I've, I've talked I've talked to people before about this weird books sit in this weird middle ground between kind of um you know an artifact and then like a usable functional object and when you've got an historic collection mm-hmm. it's kind of it's a weird middle ground you don't know like to what extent to preserve them or to what extent they need to remain functional so they need to be rebound and Absolutely. I think that's really interesting but it also yeah it's with an historic collection you do kind of appreciate what you you get from a, a physical book that you don't get from just retaining the information and I think I've 
the yeah we'll talk a little bit later on about kind of digitization and and the role that that plays but I'd say the next my next question I've got is what does your role as as director of collections and research kind of involve and what are the collections at Gladstone Gladstone's like so that's such a good question um and it allows me to kind of introduce the rest of the reading room team so I work and have always worked you know with wonderful um library and information professionals and there's always been you know a librarian here you mm. know, a properly qualified librarian um, and an archivist uh, as, as well you know to, to really look after the collections and kind of advocate for, for best practice and, and my role really is to is is to pick up where you know, just pick up on the work that they're doing effectively, you know, to bring it out to the public, that idea. It's a very, it was anyway, a very sort of academic and a very university term, these terms of public engagement and impact. Mm. And that in 2012, when I was interviewing for, for this job, that was sort of my argument, you know, is why I should be given the job is that, you know, I, I had been, up until very recently been working in an environment where you know, the idea of communicating knowledge to the widest possible public audience was a very, very good thing. It was, it was taking academic ideas, intellectual ideas, which, you know, which is Gladstone's collection. You know, there's no two ways about it. You know, there's not very much like reading in Gladstone's yeah. foundation collection. You know, a lot of it's in Latin, a lot of it's in Greek, with neither of which I read, by the way. So it's not, I'm not sort of coming at this from a kind of elevated uh position of understanding um, but that was the idea this sort of funnel you know in that we could as a library as an institution that that was something that I mean I wasn't bringing this to the library either and I think that's very important to to point out you know Gladstone's library long before I arrived had was committed to being open and accessible to as many people as possible mm. and all I did was sort of turn up and give a vocabulary of how that would apply very narrowly to Gladstone's books sitting in the history room in our reading rooms mm. and how they could be communicated really to the widest the widest possible audience in, in all different ways because we have and, and, and again long before I turned up uh, there is a really wide and diverse audience here at Gladstone's and that is really the crux of, of all that we of all that we do is how can we make how can we make our collection available to as many people mm. How can we get as many people as possible in the reading rooms? How can we make sure they've got the information that they need? And frankly, my, my professional colleagues have got their hands full with the actual physical material administration mm. of the collections, you know, looking after them, ordering them, you know, reshelving them, doing all the kind of operational things that, that librarians and archivists do. And, and, and my role really was to go out and say, hello, scholars, hello, students, hello, doctoral students and postgraduate students and people who are a bit interested in ALO and anybody, anyone who is remotely interested in anything that we do here mm. um, and talk to us. Please come and be with us. Please come and be part of the of the journey. And that that was almost 10, 10 years ago now. And we've still got lots to do. And I've yeah. still got lots to do. Um, and and that really, that's that kind of conversation, that that background, that's where the festivals came from. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, the library already had an events programme. It already yeah. had, you know, so I was able to slot quite, slot in well to the existing architecture of, of the library. Um, but that, yeah, that that's, that's what we do. It's just talking to people and shouting about these wonderful collections. And yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, did digitization definitely plays like a really key role there and I think the net yeah I wanted to ask you kind of broadly about digitization but also in the past year and a bit since the COVID-19 how have you so I think at, at the time of this recording you're still closed I think um but when it comes out you will have you'll have just opened again um so I guess yeah broadly what kind of how do you see like the importance of digitizing collections to to independent libraries? Um, I know you've done some work with the Victorian Lives and Letters Consortium, um, digitizing Gladstone's papers, which or, or, or reunifying them because they were they were split up after his death, and then now they can be digitally kind of unified in in the way that he intended them to to be originally, um, which obviously is is an amazing thing, an amazing tool, and an amazing resource. But then, you know, it's not 
again it's not the same and I think it's you know a physical library space that you can go to and stay in is such an amazing and unique thing so yeah I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on how you guys have, have handled uh, the pandemic and being closed and then also digitization kind of more, more broadly yeah that's a really big question and I'm really glad you linked <laughs> the two no because I'm so it, it's so interesting to me that you've instinctively linked digitization yeah. in the digital realm with the pandemic because that's the journey that I think a lot of workplaces, just workplaces have been on, never mind kind of cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this idea of accessibility does not just mean physical accessibility, you know, it means accessibility in all ways. And I think in a way we were really fortunate at Gladstone's because international engagement has been a conversation here since 1902. Mm. because we have we are a residential library people come to stay um, and they come from all over the world and they always have done as well this isn't a new development that people from all over the world come to stay at Glasgow Library so that that conversation of how do people anywhere on the globe experience some of what we do here a lot of what we do here a little bit of what we do here um, has always been part of the of the conversation here at the library. So in a way, we're very well prepared for digitization. Mm. I think, as you mentioned, you know, there is often um, there is often the tendency to draw the line between physical and digital. And actually, um, we've been working on sort of digital efforts for a number of years now. And actually, we find the more we put online, the more we make available, the more people come and work with the physical objects. You know, there, is, there doesn't mm. seem to be any kind of question that digital replaces physical. It's very much a, I am finding that it's very much a relationship of mutual benefit. You know, the digital copies save the physical copies because it means, you know, somebody like me, when I research books, for example, I almost never, I'm, I'm not a material book scholar. There is almost no need for me to come and handle, you know, an original 19th century novel. I just need the contents of the 19th century novel. So for me, if you work on things like Victorian sexology, for example, which I do occasionally, I'm never going to get anywhere near those books. You know, they are locked up in the Wellcome Trust for great. I tried. I saw that you had some articles written about that when I was using and I tried I tried to access them. But of course, digital scholarly articles online, you have to so much. I could have I could have managed to get them but I but, really know, wanted to read them <laughs> but, the books, but the books themselves you know things like Psychopathia Sexualis by Richard von Kraft Ebbing you know I have yet yeah, I've written on that work I teach on that work I do an awful lot with that work I have never held a physical copy of that work in my hands you know mm. because I don't I don't need to it's the content and there will be bibliographic scholars that do need to there will be scholars in translation that do need to and I'm really happy to leave the physical copies you know to them because if, if you the fact is you know I can see the books you're sitting in front of you know yeah these books they're, they're getting towards their 150th birthday you know we do need to look after them as, as physical objects and if we can reduce handling not not ban it entirely because there will always mm. be scholars that need to but you know good quality physical good quality digital copies excuse me you know work they work in tandem so beautifully with the yeah. physical object and you know and, and we're very clear here just as national best practices you know digitization is not conservation you know it doesn't mean you can just put all your physical copies in in the bin for example Mm -hmm. but but it does give I think another way of handling it another way of looking at it another way of engaging it Gladstone for example is a famous annotator Mm -hmm. and some and when we have as as I know you know you know many many thousands of, of handwritten letters and some of these can't can't be read you know his, his handwriting is, is illegible. And so mm. the more eyes you can get on those letters, the more perspectives and viewpoints you can get on those letters, the more eyeballs you can have guessing what it is that he's written, the better, because yeah, it yeah, aids yeah. our understanding. If you've got cross-hatched, cross-written letters, as have cropped up in 19th century archives, as they crop up in ours, I think it's the Livingston Project online, for example, I've done fascinating ways where they've overlaid cross-hatched letters with different mm-hmm. colours and different highlights. And it means that these very tricky documents can re- to read are suddenly mm-hmm. much more legible and much more interesting. And so I'm really passionate about digitisation, not just because it allows people, you know, from all over the world to not have to travel to a library in 
North Wales, which yeah. is really tricky to get to. And you know, and when I was when I was a student, I couldn't have afforded to to do yeah. that either. So you know, I, I re- I'm a really really large fan of opening up to digitization uh, for all all number you know any number of reasons that I've illustrated here. I think in dig- I think we, we do have to approach it in a particular way here in independent libraries. We have tiny teams. Mm. You know, we work and but, but that brings you know that brings wonderful opportunities you know um I'm hoping to launch a remote transcription project for example which means people can volunteer from all over the world you know they, again they don't have to come to Harden to to do that but we have and we have had and I'm hoping to re-recruit you know a wonderful core group of volunteers you know who adore the letter I mean you know they adore Gladstone I guess that lifelong learning again I, I, yeah. I about yeah exactly you know they love they love I mean they love these letters they're fascinated and they are quite moved you know to be able to handle them read them transcribe them work with them you know it's a it's a wonderful wonderful thing to be able to do yeah there is something about like the physicality of, of an object that's so kind of yeah irreplaceable and you can't you don't get it from digital but then you're right digitization does it can be so creative and I'm thinking of like the um the British Muse- the British Library, even their digitized collections, they've done some really cool, like interesting stuff with those, which is amazing. And yeah, it can be a really, especially for, for people who are not necessarily interested in an academic sense in in these old texts. They can make they can be a really useful tool to engage people and make it kind of fun and interesting and exciting and and legible as well. Because sometimes you know, old handwriting is. <laughs> Well, well, exactly. I mean, just being able to blow. You know, if you're if you're somebody who struggles um, with sight, for example, or has Mm -hmm. any kind of impairment, you know, just being able to blow something up. Yeah. Having having a transcription that can be read by an e-reader, you know, literally makes these things accessible. And also, just as you say, I think that you you draw that really interesting distinction between somebody who might just be quite casually interested. I mean, mm. there are thousands of people who are really interested in Gladstone or the foundation of the Leeds Library or the Portico Library in Manchester or the London Library in London yeah. and have probably got almost no reason in their life, you know, whether that's financial, intellectual, work-wise, whatever, to actually come and travel and be yeah. in the Library. But I see that I definitely do see that as kind of the the mission or the, the reason to exist for independent libraries is to facilitate in a in a non-academic way people's kind of niche weird interests and passions maybe that's cricket maybe that's like I don't know we've got a collection of magic books I think on magic because someone was really interested in magic mm. and yeah to to kind of be a space to for that lifelong kind of learning that's not you know not academic it's for yeah again that kind of like genuine slightly eccentric interest in, yeah. in knowledge and learning yeah I'll completely settle for me you know I don't need someone to get an academic paper out of the yeah. collection a lot of people do and I love them I love reading them people send us books that they've written here fantastic absolutely love it but if somebody just goes I didn't know that and then goes and tells their friend that's yeah absolutely enough as well yeah um so, well, that kind of is a nice segue onto the next topic, which I want to talk about, which is, I mean, independent libraries broadly. Um, so when when this podcast is released, we'll be a few days away from hosting the ILA, which is the Independent Library Association's AGM uh, here in the Leeds Library. Um, and the theme this year is libraries as the great good place, which is, I think, in reference to a 1989 book um, by Ray Oldenburg, in which he suggests that for a healthy existence, citizens must live in a balance of three realms, home life, which he calls first place, um, the workplace, which he calls second place, and the inclusively sociable places, um, which he calls third spaces or third places. Um, and then third places, are, it says third places are then the anchors of community life and facilitate and foster broader, more creative interaction. So, yeah, what with that in mind, what place do you think indie libraries have in the UK today and why why are they important and to what extent can they be seen as great good places with kind of useful and productive functions and it's quite a broad question and no, it's, well I just think I just think everything you said is is exactly it you know it is vital for 
there to be a space that isn't work. You know, it doesn't exist for any kind of commercial purpose. It's not necessarily there to sell you anything. Mm. You know, we live in a very capitalist world. You know, I can't think of many places I go in my daily life where I don't have to buy something to be there or pay for access to be there. And quite reasonably, you know, I'm not saying I'm being exploited by paying to go swimming. For example, the swimming pool has costs. <laughs> and indeed, some, you know, many independent libraries, their, their funding structure um, mm. does rely on, on, on membership fees. So there is, you know, some form of, of um, sort of purchase there. Mm. Gladstone's, you know, to, to come here, for example, you know, often you can buy a scone. We're very happy if you come and buy a scone or buy lunch mm. or you come to stay. So I'm not saying there isn't some sort of transactional element with independent libraries. You know, we, we're, we're important, old, listed buildings with very expensive upkeep and, you know, and staff have to be paid for the work that they do and rightly so. So I'm not suggesting that these spaces all need to be free, but they these are spaces that are very low cost you know these are spaces that are committed to widening access these are spaces that are committed to getting people through the doors you know as many people as possible through the doors of all ages of all backgrounds as many perspectives as they can and they've got one aim which is to supply you with something that triggers your mind into going mm. that's really interesting that's yeah really it's I've really I got really into doing this uh, little bit of research on <laughs> third place but so well if anyone's interested other scholars have summarized Oldenburg's view of third space with eight characteristics neutral ground a leveler um, conversation is the main activity accessibility and accommodation there's regulars it's a low profile the mood is playful and it's a home away from home which I mean sounds like the Leeds Library sounds like Gladstones it's you know, it's, it's, and I think we, you know, we have always wanted, there have always been these spaces. Yeah, well, so the, the national and cultural life, you know, yeah. they've been churches, they might, be, people will find their third space in many, many ways. But for me, I'm going to assume for you, for many yeah. people, you know, this kind of library space. And I think independent libraries do do something different. You know, I love public libraries. If it wasn't for public libraries, I wouldn't be here. You know, mm. every single person who is a member of an independent library or who um, works in an independent library got their start in public libraries. You know, mm. we all had library cards as kids, you know, all, all libraries, all museums, all spaces, you know, do have, um, you know, their, their role to play and they're all, they're all great good spaces mm. and places. Yeah, um, definitely. But I, think, but I think independent libraries really are special. I think they're really... I think they're really responsive to their community. Many of them, their community um, are actually involved in having a say, you know, whether it's because they're members, um, you know, or they're not. I mean, you know, Glasgow's has never had any kind of formalised, um, you know, reader committee or residence committee or anything like that. But the idea that of not talking to our readers and our residents all the time, yeah. all the time, you know, we, we, we do, we, we exist for, for them. Um, they exist for us, you know, yeah. we, support, we support one another. And I think, and I, I just think certainly in my 10 years in and around independent libraries, the more people we tell, you know, the only thing holding back independent libraries is that people don't know about us. The minute you tell somebody about their local independent library, they are fascinated. Yeah. And the minute they walk through the doors and they realise, because the spaces can be a little bit difficult, you know, and that's chiefly my, my role. So, and I think most people's role, you know, no matter what you do at an independent library, whether you're a volunteer, a finance manager, you know, the head of everything, a librarian, whatever, you know, is to help people navigate these spaces because, you know, the Leeds Library, for example, it's a door, isn't it? In a row of shops, mm. it's actually quite difficult to find. First and it's the same stop. reaction every time when someone walks through the door because it is, the, the, the entrance is very unassuming and yeah. you walk through the door and it's like, oh. <gasps> Yeah. I can't believe I didn't know this was here. And it's, and it's the same it. without fail. <laughs> yeah, and Glasgow's is the same. I mean, it's quite difficult to find. If you miss Church Lane, mm. you're kind of marooned in the middle of the yeah. road thinking, oh, what do I do? You have to sort of literally drive round in a big circle and go and have another run up at it. Yeah. yeah, they're quite difficult places to find. They can often be full of wood. You know, so you haven't got gla nice glass doors, for example. Like to come mm. into our reading rooms 
it's you are literally pushing your way into the beyond because it's mm. these two wooden doors that you can't see through there could be anything back there there could be sharks back there there could be mm. bears you know and that's that's our job isn't it is to say come on come on you know spaces like this are absolutely for you or silent spaces are for you it's okay you know you can come and be silent here if you if you want to but equally if you need to talk we'll find you another space you know yeah. this is this is absolutely the kind of role of, of, of independent libraries, I think, is to, is to bring something that can often be perceived as quite elite mm. to everybody. Mm. And you can get very political about that, which I won't. Um, and you can set that in all kinds of contexts according to your political lights or your religious beliefs. So I think it's a very flexible, I think this is what Oldenburg puts so beautifully, is it? it's actually his, this idea of a great good place is a very flexible concept that can exist in the kind of intersectionality of all kinds of beliefs yeah. and cultural spaces. And, and I think that's why, you know, I'm sure you, you find it at the Leeds Library. There are as many Leeds libraries as there are readers. You know, it will be a slightly different space for every different person that comes in. And that's certainly what we find at Gladstone. Yeah. It? But for some people, it's a, it's a sort of unrivaled 19th century resource. For some people, it's a place they can run their business without having to put the heating on at home for some people it's just silent space for a-level students every year it's a quieter space away from their school library which is great and has got everything they need but perhaps is quite full uh, mm. revision time you know so they they come here you know I don't know I don't know the half of what people do or experience in in here and I, I really I really like it yeah way. you're right that, actually it's that sense of ownership and a it's not i everyone everyone that walks in here thinks that this is my library my yeah. library my desk and in a way book, I, my space i love it yeah because we we do still buy and add to the collection as well so it is it is members like a member's library because it's their their books their recommendations mm-hmm. that are on the shelves basically and i think Absolutely. that's a really a nice we, history we don't buy like because we're not a lending library like yeah we have a slightly different relationship to the collections here. You reference your reference only. Yeah, reference only. Yeah. And, and lots of them have got quite a few restrictions on what you can do with them, you know, just yeah. because they're fragile. Um, but that doesn't, that's not insurmountable. You know, I, I know for a fact I've got, we've got readers that come here just for a bit of peace and quiet. They've probably never touched a book on the shelves. They bring their own books. You know, mm. they've got their own Kindle. They've got their own laptop, you know, but they love it. They absolutely love it. And I think it's, if you could bottle it, yeah. I think make an absolute fortune and I, yeah. I find it I mean it's it's never stopped fascinating me that independent libraries as tiny as say the Leighton Library in Dunblane um or as remote as the Inner Pefre in um in Scotland which I, I'm not saying it's remote because it's in Scotland I'm saying it's remote because it's literally surrounded by fields you know for, yeah. for its community it's very accessible but but it's still surrounded by fields it's this beautiful atmospheric fantastic place um you know and then you've got the London Library in St James's Square and it couldn't be more central um we all do the same thing and all mm. our readers come for the same for the mm. same sort of curious intangible quality of environment yeah. It's um one person who 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 was on this on the pod uh, described it as like a, a womb like space, which I thought was quite good. And it, because it is, it's like very kind of enclosed and, and serene and quiet, but has all of this kind of possibility and you know. And, um, and they absorb everything. I mean, all this tech that yeah. we're talking about, which you would think is completely antithetical to this classic analog brown wooden reading room that I work mm. in every day it just absorbs yeah it absorbs. macbooks look really good <laughs> in the space kindles look really you're good. right I always yeah. think this um the oh it's been a real sound probably the mics look really cool in the yeah they're, the just these, they're, they're these really flexible spaces you know we've had performances have you seen the art exhibition at the portico these incredible no. forms and shapes that kind of climb on the shelves and hang yeah. over the reading room space. It is absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I think, I think a few years ago we had we oh, um, had like live performances here and stuff, and 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 weddings. People often get married here as well, and that mm. yeah, it's a really yeah, yeah again flexible. And like you were saying, there's a kind of as many libraries as there are people who use them for different yeah. kind of yeah. Functions. And there's lots of people. There's loads and loads of people who say you can't if you have weddings in a library space. Well, then you'll ruin the library space. And yet somehow it doesn't happen. 
it doesn't mm. happen it just absorbs mm. and carries on going you know because I yeah. think if you're the sort of person who is attracted to an independent library and thinks oh that's really interesting I like that yeah that's good even if you struggle to access it a couple of times you know I work and live and breathe independent libraries and I still struggle with you know oh can I go through that door am I all right in here yeah can I, take my can I touch this book or is it going to fall apart in my fingers should I go down there you know I mean we all have these those, those issues I mean that's yeah. in every space but I have, that, that notwithstanding you know if you're if you're the sort of person that thinks, oh, isn't this brilliant? Well, then you're the right sort of person to be in the space. Yeah. I have almost the opposite sometimes when I'm here, when when um, the librarians will get down like a, this really old, fragile book. And go, oh, do you want to have a leaf through it? And I'm like, I, can't, I shouldn't be touching this. Yeah. <laughs> this exactly. is like 400 years old. This should be behind glass. <laughs> exactly. And I think all, you know, all, all libraries, it's not just independent libraries that are warm and welcoming you know all, all libraries are really you know and but they just need a bit of navigating to kind of yeah 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 um well I guess kind of with that in mind what do you see for the future of independent libraries um and what I mean what's the best case scenario what are the goals that indie libraries should be striving for I guess we've already kind of like talked about that bit but mm. Um, how do you see the kind of the, the sector I guess you could call it a sector yeah yeah absolutely. I, love I love the idea of it being a sector yeah I mean I think I think the pandemic as dreadful is and I don't want to down I'm not going to dwell mm. on the sadness of the pandemic um, we've all had some very great sadnesses um, as a result of the last 18 months personally professionally you know and I want to acknowledge that you know particularly in this but as you say when this podcast goes out, we lessons will just have opened and that will be an 18 month closure. So, mm. you know, I, I can't and mustn't and won't downplay that. Um, but one of the great joys of the last 18 months has been being in touch with my independent library colleagues. You know, Zoom has enabled us all to get together. Um, Melanie Jeffs from Bromley House has hosted kind of town hall meetings where we all just got together and shared the sort of successes what works what wasn't working what was frustrating what was difficult you know those of us who were closed for a bit longer were cheering on those who managed to get open you know there were libraries delivering books on bicycles to their users mm. there were libraries that had their staff hiking in you know across central London or up a hill in um, Cornwall you know to get to their buildings to keep them open you know this mm. was really wonderful and I, I think I think you're quite right we really can call it a sector I mean I think we always could I think we always could but I apart from the conferences where you would get sort of 40 people in a room which is once a year now you know there's maybe 50 60 people yeah. at a zoom meeting and we can put faces to names and we can get we can get to know people and we can grow um the sector and people who perhaps weren't familiar with certain digital tools now feel very confident and supported with those digital tools. And I think, you know, we are all moving towards events online, books online, you know, all kinds of things, all kinds of new ways, which I think will really help. You know, I don't, I don't know of an independent library, I don't know of any library or museum who's got enough staff to do mm -hmm. what, they, what they want to do. And, you know, I think, What's, what we've really been able to embrace as a sector is, is the capacity by which all these tools can help us and that we can share and pool knowledge. You know, we can meet, I, I can do this with, yeah. with you. I mean, I don't know that Leeds, I'm sure Leeds Library would have had a podcast and, you know, is absolutely committed like Gladstone's is to talking to as many people as possible. You're, no, you're right. It did come out of the pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's, you know we've got we'll have a new team here at Gladstones a lot of the projects that we'll be working on will be what we were working on before before the pandemic but we'll be doing it in in new ways you know with new tools and new I mean something as pragmatic as the switch to teams you know because our library was closed for so long having a physical server was an unacceptable fire risk and so we had to move to a cloud-based server 
And this sounds very tangential, but what that means is we now access all of our files uh, through Teams. It's not just a communications tool, it's a file accessing tool as well. And Teams has got really interesting ways of recording metadata. You can add metadata columns. And so this is going to have a massive impact on how we store and create and access our digital archive. And it means that we think about our digital archive in a different way. Mm. So our digital archive before the pandemic was very much PDF and JPEG and TIFF based. Now our digital archive is audio, visual, you know, all of these things, you know, it's a wonderful way of, of thinking. It's I think it's really pushed. This, as I say, this is not to say, I'm, I want to make it quite clear, I'm not like, oh, well, thank goodness this pandemic happened because it was dreadful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we do have to look for silver linings. We do have to acknowledge where things have been able to push forward. And I think in terms of accessibility and public engagement and impact, you know, I hate the phrase working smarter, not hard, smarter, not harder. Um, but, it, you know, the, the, in, in many ways where independent libraries have traditionally struggled, you know, communicating with our audiences, letting people know that we're here, helping our small teams get as much done as they can, some of the technological advances that have come about because of the pandemic have, have I think, had a very disproportionate positive impact yeah. in, in independent libraries. And I think the other thing to, that we've certainly noticed is, is it, you know, talking to each other and, and international engagement. And we've had people on Zoom events from America and there's definitely there's loads of indie libraries in America as well. And, you know, all over the world, people have been kind of able to, yeah, like access events and, and um, to kind of the work that we do, which has been amazing. And, and that's yeah. come out of the pandemic as well. So, yeah, so, you're right, no, so not events. to downplay at all but yeah well yeah, this podcast. I've, I've been to, yeah I've been, to, I've, been to lo I've been to absolutely loads of events you know I was able yeah. to speak at these library AGM you know and if I couldn't have done that I could have done it via this medium you know it, it's I've been to events that you know independent libraries have put on you know I, I've been to you know digitally I've been to Newcastle I've been to Manchester I've been to Cornwall I've been to London you know all while sitting in my in my house in in Chester you know mm. it's it's it, I've I have learned you know and this is somebody who's worked in independent libraries for 10 years you know I've learned so much more about my fellow libraries in this past 18 months and it's, it's been an absolute joy to learn more yeah. about them to speak more to the people who run them and to just be more involved in in this world yeah so I guess the the kind of the last kind of topic that I wanted to quickly talk about was so you're the the co-director of, of Gladfest which is Gladstone's Libraries um, Literary Festival can you tell me a little bit about that and what you're expecting from Gladfest 2021 which is the 11th my birthday and 12th of September um, well, happy birthday for the <laughs> I can't imagine surely you'll be attending Gladstone's Gladfest oh yeah well well I was gonna ask anyway. actually, is it I mean, are you, is that going to be back in person or will that be kind of online or, or mixed? Well, frankly, we don't know at the mm -hmm. moment. We don't, we're in Wales, so restrictions okay. are yeah. stricter here. And we are planning, you know, we are basically, we are planning for what we know that we can do. So what we know that we can do is that we will have some authors here with us at the library. And we say so we will have some physical events going. At the moment, uh, we have not planned for there being an order. We've got a backup plan. At mm -hmm. the moment, there will be no physical audience. Um, there will only be online. The online tickets are going on sale very soon. Um, we're really excited about it. We're going to have um, about 10, roughly 10 events across the weekend. It's going to be very much like the Gladfest people know and love, um, but they can attend from the comfort of their, of their own home. And if, if we are lucky and if we can um, have a physical audience here with us, then we will work very hard to make that happen. Mm. And will they be recorded for for future uh, people who are interested? Because I I believe that it will maybe have finished when this podcast comes out. <laughs> so, um, if we've worked um, really hard on the sort of event structure, so we believe that going forward, almost all events here at Glasson's Library will be broadcast online in some form. Mm. So there will be the opportunity to attend digitally 
for most of the events that we do here going forward mm. we've always been restricted i bet leeds is the same you know even when we have well you know our physical events were, were full we were selling sort of 92 percent of all of all tickets yeah. on average you know so we were we were always looking for ways of expanding um the audience anyway um so that's that's really helped us so we think there will always be online tickets available as well as physical tickets available going forward um they'll be broadcast if for any reason you've bought a ticket for a digital broadcast and you can't make it or your internet malfunctions or you can't participate don't worry because they will be all events will be hosted on our intranet the gladstone bag uh, for two weeks post um broadcast and then they fall back into our again the intranet the gladstone bag has a pocket um, for our digital archive and that at the moment is accessible to friends so friends is anybody who makes a regular donation here to gladstone's library and the and if you make a regular donation here to gladstone's library which can be, you know, a couple of pounds a month. I mean, it can be very, very small. Um, you have completely free, unfettered access to all of our digital archive, including audio recordings that go back about nine years. It's quite, wow. a, big, it's quite a big thing. And so That's we, amazing. Yeah, we're really excited that, that, yeah. that we've been able to reshape our events programme in that way. That's but for really now, it's online, it's online only, you know, to keep mm. everyone safe. And also the practical elements, you know, we don't know if it's going to change. You know, if we, if we do release physical tickets it'll probably be quite close to the event itself just so we don't get into the kind of I know I know many of our of our fellow libraries you know things have been open and then they've been closed and they've been open mm. and they've been closed mm. and we're trying to keep the path to Gladfest as smooth as possible so at the moment do look out for the digital tickets um, if you are listening to this and Gladfest has been and you're missing it or you have missed it, don't worry, um, because you should click on our website and find out how to be a friend, and then you get access to all of our events, and you can watch them as many times as you like. Amazing. Wow. So exciting. And um, so, yes, I guess to to wrap it up then, finally, um, are you working on any current projects uh, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, yeah, we are. Um, we are currently working on, um, you know, new um, ways of reshaping our, our reading rooms. So we're going to have lots more information, again, to help people who are perhaps new to the library into the reading rooms navigate the spaces. So that's something I'm working on. I'm looking forward to um, bringing on board a whole new team. So by the time this goes out, we'll have been working together for about a month. I think so you know that's going to be incredibly exciting and um, we're working on getting our digitization project back up and running that's sort of consuming a lot of my time um we've been able to kind of seal off a couple of areas so that's created some more closed storage so I'm looking at moving some archives around again just so they can be stored in a little bit more of a protective way um, we're going to be recruiting new volunteers um, in all different ways so again if you're listening to this do take a look at our website to see where we've got to um, yeah it's all going on I bet all all the independent libraries are sort of doing the same yeah. are projects that had to pause you're bringing them back online there's new things you want to do there's always new things you, you want to do you know I can't at the moment I'm here on my own you know I'm sitting here talking to you you know in a very very empty uh, reading room space and I can't wait I've got um, in two more weeks I will have um, I will have you know a team to work with again and I can't I just I just can't wait you know we've been closed yeah. for months. we've really needed to be closed for this 18 months with our financing structure we wouldn't have survived if we if we hadn't closed but we are raring to go you know our social media is filled with just the nicest messages from people who can't wait mm. to come back and we can't wait to have them back so I'm just I'm really I'm slightly you know I'm slightly trembling at my to-do list which is enormous um but I'm, I, I couldn't be more excited to, to get yeah on. wow well Lisa thank you so so much this has been super interesting and enjoyable so oh, I really enjoyed talking to you well thank you for having me and thank you for having such wonderful questions you know you've obviously put <laughs> you know some real thought and research into into all the questions that you've asked it's been so nice to talk to you and I really enjoyed doing it really, and yes I really enjoyed talking to you look out for Gladstone's Library and uh, the ILA conference which will be coming up in the next week or so I think um, and yeah wonderful cheers Thanks. <laughs> this has been a podcast from the Leeds Library 
Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at The Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.